listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. We have some breaking news coming out of Spain right now where an Air Canada jet, a Boeing 767 aircraft, is about to make an emergency landing at the airport in Madrid after reporting a technical problem. The Toronto-bound flight, it's AC-837, departed from the international airport earlier in the day, and then the airline requested a slot for an emergency landing some 30 minutes after takeoff. The official, who were not authorized to be named in media reports, said they could not elaborate on the reason for the ask for the emergency landing. Some have suggested there has been some kind of problem with the landing gear. Perhaps something happened on takeoff. We are watching this again. Air Canada Jet, an Air Canada Jet is expected to make an emergency landing in Madrid at any time, and we will get you more information as it becomes available. The other thing that is developing, of course, today is new information on the coronavirus and new information coming from the federal government. I can see that people just taking their seats now in the press gallery in Ottawa, just about to update us on the coronavirus. We're going to take you there live in just a couple of minutes. But just to give you the numbers, there are 325 Canadians asking for help to return to Canada from Wuhan, which of course is the city at the epicenter of the virus. More than 300 people have died from the disease. 14,000 have been infected, including four here in Canada. The province gave an update just a short while ago, and here are the numbers in Ontario. Confirmed positive cases on coronavirus, three Presumptive, zero. Currently under investigation, 26. Presumptive negative, three. And confirmed negative, 76. A lot of numbers there to take in, but really the key is three confirmed positive cases here in Ontario, four overall in terms of Canada, in terms of the nation. Here is Dr. David Williams, who is Ontario's Medical Officer of Health. Talking about what's going to happen when we do get these 325 Canadians back to Canada, there's a number of hurdles that they have to clear. They have to be screened before they get on the plane, and once they're on the plane, they got to be screened, and then once they get off the plane, they got to be screened. And then it is into the facilities at Trenton where they will stay in isolation for at least 14 days. And here's the doctor talking about those facilities in Trenton and how they have been used before. We did use some of those facilities, as you may recall, back with the uh, refugees from Syria through Lebanon. And so it's not that we haven't done that. We have done that. And we're looking at the facilities there. Is it adequate? Is it nice lodging and proper food? All those need day-to-day needs are going to be met because these people coming will need to be handled in that way. And you can imagine the difficulty that these Canadians are going to face. I mean, not only have they been stranded in Wuhan for a lot longer than other nationals who have already been taken out of there, the Americans, the Australians, the British, all taking their citizens out prior to when we can get them out. Now, when we do get our Canadians out, the question is, how long will they stay there in Trenton? And what kind of facilities will we have? And we have a we have a global news crew on our way to Trenton today, and Morgan Campbell will be calling in later on in the uh, Jeff MacArthur show for an update from Trenton on what's going on there as we try and keep our eye on what's happening. I can tell you that the foreign affairs minister 
François-Philippe Champagne is speaking right now in Ottawa. I know he has been speaking in French. Let's just quickly go to him now and see if he's switched over to English. Ici, ce qui nécessitait évidemment une analyse approfondie et des décisions My French is weak, but I think he's ordering breakfast. We'll get back to that when we move to the other official language, the one that I'm a little more comfortable in. Uh, I can tell you that uh, I blame all of this on my grade 10 French teacher, who spent more time balancing things on his nose than he did actually speaking and teaching me French. I kid you not. I think he was... I can't remember what the deal was, whether he was a circus performer before he became a French teacher, but we knew as kids in class that, you know, if things got boring, you could just ask him, you know, tell us more about your time in the circus. And the next thing you know, he'd be balancing a chair on his chin. That is the reason I cannot speak French. Let's go back to that press conference. Approvals from the Chinese authorities. The airspace in Yuan is currently closed. So we need special dispensation for a plane to land. Furthermore, we need Chinese approval for the flight manifest and all the documentation of Canadians wishing to leave in order for them to travel to the airport, which, as you know, is currently closed. We will be in touch with Canadians in Wuhan later this afternoon to provide them all the necessary details. We have members of the Standing Rapid Deployment Team now on the ground in both Wuhan and Hanoi to help coordinate all this. You're listening live to a press conference in Ottawa, updating on getting the Canadians out of Wuhan. This is the federal foreign affairs minister. Given the complexity of this evolving situation, we now have all required visas for the standing rapid deployment team, the DND medical team, and the flight crews. Additionally, as Minister Haidu mentioned, we also need to consider the health and safety of Canadians here at home, which required analysis and decisions regarding quarantine for Canadians who are leaving. I want all Canadians currently in Yuan and their family and loved ones outside of the region to know that we are doing all we can to help them and to be in touch with our consular officials for further details. All right, that is the minister, the foreign affairs minister for Canada, Champagne, Minister Champagne, saying that uh, we will be getting those Canadians out. Looks like it's going to be happening today, but they still haven't really detailed exactly what's going to happen in Trenton. And we're going to check back in with that press conference, get you more information as we get it. This is all developing today, of course, and one of the big news stories that you're going to have to keep your eye on. The other one, of course, throughout the week is ongoing labor disruption in the education sector and for parents in the Halton area. Shout out to my uh, people in Burlington, my hometown. Uh, anybody in Halton who has kids in the elementary system, you know that they are out today because of a strike. And we'll have a one-day walkout across the province on Thursday. It'll hit Toronto on Friday. So my grade sixer, my son, who's in grade six, will be out uh, two days this week, which is which is not great. You know, he has. Um, he hasn't had a stellar academic career up until now, but grade six has been a real sea change for my son. He's got a great teacher. He's he's loved being the big kid on campus. He goes down to Queen Street and he buys his lunch. He loves it. He loves the extra freedom. He has really kind of hit his stride. And to have his year so impacted 
by this labor disruption, I mean, it has a real-world impact. I'm not going to get a report card. And a report card is absolutely key. So how is it that teachers and unions justify two days out of two days, folks, out of school for every elementary kid in this province? Here is the president of Etfo Halton Region, Kathy Proctor. It is unfortunate that students are missing school. Teachers want to be in their classrooms with their students. But if we don't act now, the school system that we know is not going to exist anymore. The children are not going to get the supports that they need. And so we have to stand up and yes, they'll miss a couple days, but we want to save our quality public education system. Now, do you believe that? Is that your perspective, that the entire system is at risk and that the only way that we can save the system, the only way we can do so, is by putting kids in the middle and making sure that there's this kind of impact and this kind of pressure on the government. Well, Doug Ford was at Groundhog Day celebrations, and I think for a lot of parents, you're like, here we go again. It is, it's like you feel like Bill Murray sitting up in that bed. Boom. Here we go again. Another round of troubles, another walkout, another day with no school for the kids, and what am I going to do? Here's Doug Ford talking about how he is increasingly frustrated, not with teachers, no, sir, but with the union leadership. They're getting frustrated that uh, the head of the unions are forcing their teachers to walk out. I've had numerous, numerous texts from teachers saying, I don't want to be doing this. And I can tell you that so far the Premier's office has said no in terms of why don't you show us those texts that you've had. What texts? How many teachers realistically are coming up to the Premier and saying, you know what, we're being forced to walk out, we don't want this. If the Premier believes that, he has a recourse. And I've talked about it before. Put your money where your mouth is, Premier. Put a deal directly to the membership. If you believe that the majority of teachers are not behind their union leadership, then put the deal to the teachers and have them vote. Otherwise, that's a non-starter. And you know what? Kids need to be in class. You know why? Because they need to learn geography. Because someday they may grow up to be a major world leader and have no clue about where cities are and what states they actually are in. Within minutes of the clock winding down and the confetti flying on the field in Miami, President Trump took to Twitter to congratulate the Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. The president writing, quote, you represented the great state of Kansas and in fact the entire USA so very well. A nice message, except Kansas City is in Missouri, not Kansas. The president deleted the tweet, corrected the state and reposted his message. But the original post went viral on Twitter. Some asking if the president would take a sharpie to Kansas to add in Kansas City, a joke playing off of the Alabama hurricane map controversy last fall. Karen Travers, ABC News, the White House. All right, hands up who who didn't know that Kansas City was in Missouri. All right, you know you didn't. You know you didn't. I found out recently, but I did know. No, no, no. You didn't know.
Yesterday was the uh, BAFTAs, this weekend the BAFTAs, the British uh, Oscars, and Joaquin Phoenix was named Best Actor for his role in Joker, and when he went up on stage, he had this to say. Uh, I think that we send a very clear message to people of color that you're not welcome here. Um, I think that's the message that we're sending to people that have contributed uh, so much to our medium and our industry and in ways that we benefit from. Um, <clears throat> I don't think anybody wants a, uh, a handout or preferential treatment, although that's what we give ourselves every year. I think that people just want to be acknowledged and appreciated and respected for, for their work. This is not a self-righteous condemnation because uh, I'm ashamed to say that I'm part of the problem. I have not uh, done everything in my power to ensure that the sets I work on are inclusive, uh, but I think that it's more than just having sets that are multicultural. I think that um, we have to really do the, the hard work to truly understand systemic racism. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I think that it is the obligation of the people that have created and perpetuate and benefit from a system of oppression to be the ones that dismantle it. So that's on us. That is Joaquin Phoenix, who was named Best Actor at the BAFTAs at his acceptance speech saying, it is on us, it is on me. Mr. Phoenix taking some personal responsibility, saying he had not done enough to ensure that sets were more diverse. And that leads me to a post on a blog, a, an article on a website here in Canada called Refinery29. And this struck me. It starts this way. Canadian television still has not made a significant space for black artists, nor does it adequately reflect the 22% of Canadians who are people of color. There has been progress, but not enough. Most shows paint a monolithic, whitewashed picture of this country, and it isn't just that Canadian TV is so white, it's that the industry seems to be turning a blind eye to the issue. For as much as we love to smugly tout cultural inclusion and diversity in this country, Canadian TV has a very real racism problem. I wonder if you agree with that when you watch television. I don't know how much TV you watch. If you watch any CanCon, you may note that uh, Netflix and other streaming services, the federal government is looking at getting them to collect tax and then also put money into a Canadian fund that they would have to create Canadian content, much the same way as Global Television, uh, who I work for, must create Canadian content as part of its license. All major Canadian broadcasters must do that. Should, should uh, also Netflix and others have to do that. We're trying to get a hold of the author of the article that we just uh, read from, from Refinery29, to talk more about whether she sees what she sees in terms of Canadian media and in terms of whether or not you believe what you heard there, which is that Canadian media and Canadian television is simply too white. Kathleen Newman-Brimang is a senior writer with Refinery29 and wrote the paragraph that I just read to you, and welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So when you look at 
Canadian broadcasting and Canadian television. I mean, we, we make a big deal, as you point out, in this country about diversity, inclusivity, multiculturalism. You don't see that on the screen? No, I don't. I mean, this piece really started for me with the question of where's all the black can con, uh, because I think in the States, you've really seen a revolution there. You've seen shows like Atlanta and Scandal and Insecure and Blackish. And there's really all these great examples. And I was looking at Canadian media and I didn't see it. And then it was larger than that. It was it was people of color in general in this country. You know, you look at some of the shows that are being critically lauded and have international acclaim, and that's um, Ship's Creek, Working Moms, Baroness Von Sketch, uh, Letter Kenny, and the one exception is Kim's Convenience. And so I really uh, started with that and then kind of went down a road of talking to people in the industry, looking at the stats, and what I found was not the Canada that I know and not the Canada that loves to pat itself on the back for multiculturalism. And I really uh, I exposed kind of this system, this systemic racism that does exist that, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, of all people, spoke about. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, you what comes to mind are some shows that I think, you know, do represent, you know, people of color. I think of Little Mosque on the Prairie, which I think is gone now. But there are... Guess, there, yeah, that's not a current show on Canadian television. But there, but there have been shows, and Canadian television doesn't... We just don't simply create... We don't create that much of it. Is it unfair to expect that we would have shows like Atlanta and those other kinds of shows that are created for niche audiences in a system where there's enough of an audience south of the border that we don't have here? Uh, no, I disagree. I, I also don't think Atlanta is, is for a niche audience. I think that's for everybody. It is just a very specific experience, and we know that specificity can be universal. Um, and so I don't think that it is unfair to ask Canada or Canadian content to represent um a lot of people in this country. And yes, it is a smaller market. Of course, we don't have as much money as the U.S. There's not going to be as many shows. But the fact that so many of the shows in this country are not reflective of its people is a big problem to me. And I don't think we should let networks off the hook just because it is a smaller market. Do you advocate some kind of top-down, some sort of regulation that would require, you know, more diversity on the air? I mean, I think that when you get into regulations, it's very tricky because of who potentially is putting in those regulations. I think some of the stats I brought up in the piece are some of these diversity programs that have been put in place. They tend to benefit white women because women and gender parity is included in these diversity initiatives. And we know that if you're just talking gender parity, the the women that benefit uh, are white. And so the people of color that are supposed to be benefiting from these systems uh, don't. So I do think it needs to be top down. I think, it, uh, you know, the executives are overwhelmingly white. And from the people that I spoke to in the scripted entertainment world in Canada, um, they're having a hard time getting in front of the right people. Um, they talked about nepotism that exists in the industry. So it does need to change. I think uh, who is in power needs to change, or at least they need to be bringing in different people. Um, yeah. All right. Kathleen, thank you. Just uh, I, I lost you at the end there as I was speaking to my producer trying to figure out where we're going to go next on the program. But I, I guess the, okay. I guess, I guess my what is, what is the takeaway here in terms of how do we fix this? I think the takeaway is there needs to be more conversations like this. 
this, I had, I, so much of the feedback I got from this piece was thank you for finally saying this out loud from people in the industry, as well as consumers, as, re- as well as the audience. And I think once we start putting pressure on networks, that's what we saw in the States. There was a lot of pressure. There was campaigns. There was hashtag Oscar so white and networks started changing and the people who got opportunities started changing. So I think our next step is just to really put pressure on your networks, put pressure on the people making these programs to actually hire the people of color that do exist. The talent is there. They're not just, they're not getting hired. And and you agree with Joaquin Phoenix that it's going to take, you know, the stars to say, no, I'm not coming on this set till it's more diverse. Absolutely. I mean, he said the word systemic uh, racism and uh, he talked about who benefits the most and it is uh, white people in power, the actors, as well as the producers and executives. And so it really is on them to to make the change. And uh, yeah, I, those were nice words from Joaquin Phoenix and I hope he follows it up with action. Kathleen Newman-Brimang is a senior writer at Refinery29, and you can read her story about Canadian television and a lack of diversity. It is online now. Kathleen, I really appreciate you being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. We are keeping our eye on this developing news coming out of Madrid, where an Air Canada Boeing 767 aircraft has been returning now, is returning to the airport in Madrid for an emergency landing after reporting a technical issue. A spokesperson from Air Canada telling Global News in a statement that flight AC-837 had to return to Madrid, to to Toronto, was returning from Madrid to Toronto with 128 passengers on board when it experienced an engine issue shortly after leaving the ground. It's said that one of the aircraft's tires ruptured on takeoff that has prompted an emergency landing. I am watching this now as it unfolds, and you can follow along, too, on globalnews.ca, and we will keep you up to date as we get more information from the Madrid airport, an emergency landing of an Air Canada Boeing 767. That is supposed to be happening shortly. The plane is currently circling as it burns off fuel before it attempts this emergency landing. To the newspapers now. Over the weekend, three of Canada's biggest newspapers ran full-page ads from a mysterious group that accused Ontario teachers of using kids as pawns. The ads are paid for by a group that calls itself the Vaughn Working Families. But no one knows very much about Vaughn Working Families. The group has no contact information, no website. There appears to be no evidence of the group at all, apart from the expensive ads. Well, the NDP have some thoughts about who might be behind it. This is Taras Natashik, who is an MPP for the Ontario NDP, speaking this morning at a press conference. Doug Ford can't look the other way so that his buddies can use PC party messaging to attack teachers and help his agenda of cuts to education. That's why I've written to Elections Ontario to request that the commissioner immediately investigates whether and how these advertisements break the rules and who is behind these illegal political ads. And Taras joins me on the phone now. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Al. What do we know about this, and do you have any evidence? You strongly linked it to Doug Ford. Do you have any evidence that actually links this to the Progressive Conservative Party? 
Uh, to your first question, what do we know? Well, we know what this group has wanted us to know, that they are from Vaughn or that they appear to be from Vaughn, but they don't want us to know who they are. Uh, if that were the case, then we would have some contact information, uh, a liaison for their group, a website to refer to. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it raises a lot of questions and it's, it's deeply concerning. Uh, what we do know is that this advertisement closely aligns with the talking points of Doug Ford as Minister of Education and their government. It's uh, verbatim uh, usage of, of the verbiage that uh, Doug has used throughout uh, the, the issue with teachers and throughout uh, this, uh, the, you know, the, this period of time in negotiation. So we are calling on the Elections Commissioner to investigate uh, who placed these ads and whether, in fact, these ads are in contraventions of the Elections Act. Uh, that's because, you know, we most of us know that there are two by-elections that have been called in the Ottawa area, and uh, any third-party advertising throughout the period of an election uh, could be in contravention of the Elections Act, and those who place that ad could be in contravention of it. A spokesperson for the Minister of Education writing, the minister and I were not aware of the advertisements and are not familiar with the group Vaughn Working Families. It, interesting, Working Families. Can you give me a, the history on the name Working Families? Well, there are there have been several groups throughout you know time that have used uh, the term working families, working coalition. Uh, so it, you know it seems like common vernacular for groups that are trying to represent a certain subset of people. What we do know is that the advertisements that have been placed don't don't feature any working families. In fact, they used a, a stock photo from a woman that is from Poland. So whoever is placing these ads uh, can't find a real Ontarian and a real working mom to support their attack on teachers. And that's why we're calling the, the uh, Elections Commissioner to investigate, you know, what looks like a shadow group using potential dark money to uh, to, to lob uh, attack ads at, at our educators and, and, frankly, at our kids. This does nothing to de-escalate any of the tensions that are happening at the at the bargaining table. It does nothing to support kids in classrooms, uh, and, and, and we need to get to the bottom of it because it's, it's frankly an attack on our, on our democratic institutions and, and our elections. But considering what the Minister of Education through a spokesperson is saying, and the fact that you don't have any evidence, to be able to say, well, it just lines up with the talking points of the Ford government, it, is that not a little irresponsible on your part? No, unfortunately, this government, and specifically Doug Ford, have established a pattern of, uh, you know, circumventing or finding any way that they can to circumvent the rules when it comes to elections. We've seen them do it before. There were questions around the use of 407 data. There were questions about stuffing ballots for nominations. So this is a pattern on behalf of this government, and, and, and when you've established a pattern of not following the rules, then your motives have to be called into questions and your actions have to be called into question. So, you know, again, it's not for me to to uh, to decide whether they are associated with those who have placed this ad. It's up to the elections commissioner. That's well within. But but you are you are at every opportunity you are drawing the link. Even though you say it's like a, you're not saying it's it, one plus one equals two, but one plus one equals two. That's what you're saying. Yeah, because the the, the coincidences here are are you know too much to ignore. The the again the the verbiage, the fact that uh, you know by and large Ontarians support teachers in this in this uh, fight here right now. So it it begs the question: who who can Doug Ford find to support his his cause and his cuts to education? Well, we haven't seen you know much evidence of anyone 
on being on his side on this issue. Well, the, the so, Premier would say that the teachers are on his side. He says he's getting texts from teachers saying that they're being forced out and that they don't want to be out, off the job. I did see that, and it's interesting for the Premier to claim that he's receiving texts from the general public when just months ago he cancelled his cell phone because he was receiving so many calls from the general public about the cuts that he was making to you know, vital public services like uh, support for kids with autism. So uh, what, what's his new number? I would like to know it, and if he can broadcast that and, and uh, folks could reach out to him, that would be great. But we don't take uh, their word on this. Uh, it's unfortunate that we can't because this is not a credible government. At every turn, they've, uh, they've tried to circumvent the rules and, and try to use any, any tactic that they can to attack their political foes. Uh, we see this as being, you know, having all the hallmarks of a Doug Ford smear campaign, and, and uh, rightfully it should be uh, in front of the elections commissioner to take a look at. Thank you, Taras. I appreciate being on the program. My pleasure. Thanks, Al. That is Taras Antashik, who is the Ontario NDP ethics and accountability critic. Welcome back to the program. A lot to get through in our next segment as we look at a couple of things making news, things that you need to be informed about as you go about your day. Let's begin with negotiations between teachers and the province. They were called off on Friday, and now we have more rotating strikes that will take kids out of class. Elementary kids will be out two days this week, a province-wide walkout on Thursday, then a rotating strike. It's Halton today. It is Toronto on Friday. Check your local listings for when your kids will be out. So do you think as a parent and as a citizen, you should get to know what is going on at the negotiating table? Because you know that that stuff is under a blackout. It's under a media blackout. You basically, you don't have any information on what is truly being discussed at the table. Basically what you get is you get the spin from the union, you get the spin from the government, and somewhere in the middle is the actual truth. Well, 74% of Canadians believe that bargaining between governments and unions should happen transparently. This is according to a new poll by Ipsos, commissioned by Global News, conducted on behalf of Global News. And Jennifer McLeod Macy is with Ipsos and joins me on the line. Hi, Jennifer. Hi there. So what is it that Canadians are saying they want? Well, as you said, we put it to them. We said, you know, do you think that the government and the unions who are representing the government employees should have these conversations transparently so we, Canadians, can follow what's being demanded or conceded by both parties? Or do you think it should happen behind closed doors so that they can speak frankly to each other and, you know, um, keep that confidential discussion uh, protected? And overwhelming majority of three-quarters say, no, it needs to be transparent. But I, I would imagine that negotiators, maybe I would I would suspect on both sides of the table, would say that that transparency would take away their ability to speak frankly and negotiate openly, and instead it would just be all about scoring points with the public. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they feel that way. But you know, the public, when given the choice, they want it open, and I think they just. They want to know what's going on. They want to ensure that it's happening, you know, at a proper speed and going in the right direction for them, you know, the the public stakeholder. 
Obviously, we're in the middle of uh, plenty of negotiations here in Ontario right now. This question was asked to all Canadians. But um, using this uh, current labour dispute as an example, you know, it's been going on a long time. And um, Canadians, uh, Ontarians, 8 and 10 Ontarians say, no, I want transparency. I want to know what's happening. Jennifer McLeod Macy is with Ipsos Canada. Appreciate you being on the program, Jennifer. Thank you so much. No problem. So that's interesting that the vast majority, 74% of Canadians, say that they want to know what's happening at the bargaining table. Would that help you in your understanding what was going on? Would it perhaps change your mind, I wonder? Because, like I say, it will just devolve into more scoring of points, more talking points. So now it's not just talking points from the minister or the union at press conferences when talks break down. They're actually at the talks trying to make points. To me, I understand what it is Canadians want there. I mean, they want to know what's happening at the table. I just think that if you take away the ability of negotiators to say outrageous things, like, you know, when you go into a negotiation, you think about this yourself. Like, well, think about when you bought a car last time. Last time I bought a car, you know, I went in there, it was a car at a dealership, I wanted it. I made them an absolutely ludicrous lowball offer, like insulting, right? And that's what happens at negotiating tables. So what, you're going to have one side go in and make it the insulting opening offer, because that's the way it begins, right? You start from insulting and you move up into reasonable. So now the insulting offer is in the public sphere, and the public's going to go, well, that is outrageous. What you just asked for, either from the government side or from the union side, that's outrageous. And that is not how negotiating should work. And I think that that, I understand, I totally understand why Canadians and why Ontarians want to know what's exactly happening at the table, because we got spin from both sides, and it's difficult to tell. Where, where is the truth here? But if you take away that ability for negotiators to do that in private and be able to say, well, I, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this half orange peel and a dollar, and we call it a day. And you're like, well, that is outrageous. That is actually, by the way, what the car dealer came back to me with. He looked at me and he said, that is an insult to me, sir. That is an insult. And I thought, well, that's great because that means that my opening was quality. Because that's the way you got to do it. What's going on in Iowa, you ask? Well, the Iowa presidential caucuses begin at 8 o'clock tonight. The first results are expected about 8.30 p.m. If you're feeling a little let down by the Super Bowl, it's all over. Well, the biggest game in town is about to get underway, which is the U.S. presidential election. And this thing makes the rules of cricket seem absolutely simple. The first results, as I say, 8.30 p.m., there are seven Democratic candidates mounting competitive campaigns in Iowa. They are Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg, 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 Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana. Andrew Yang is in there. Amy Klubakar, is that her name? I've forgotten her name now. Now here is our Washington bureau chief, Jackson Prosco, with what is expected to happen today. 
We're just a few hours away from the Iowa caucuses, and it's still an open question as to who's in the lead and who has the momentum to win tonight. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are currently tied in the polls. Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren aren't far behind. And that's really raised questions about how this is all going to unfold and whether we could be in store for a very late night tonight. In recent days, Bernie Sanders has really seen his support across the state surge. Last night, he told the crowd at a Super Bowl watch party that his fate will depend on turnout. If the turnout tomorrow night is low, we're going to lose. If the turnout is high, we're going to win. But Joe Biden is seen by many Democrats as the safer choice, more middle of the road, someone with broader appeal. Speaking with many of the supporters who've been at the last minute events over the past few days, they say it all comes down to who is best positioned to beat Donald Trump in the general election. And even if they don't like who the eventual nominee is, they will all but certainly fall in line behind them. That, though, hasn't eased fears of a rift within the Democratic Party, as many voters remain split between a turn to the left and more progressive candidates and the safer, more middle-of-the-road choices. The caucuses will unfold in classrooms, in schools, in cafeterias across Iowa tonight. As groups gather, they move from one side of the room to the other to signal their vote intent, and the results will clearly give us a sense of who's got the momentum going forward into the rest of the primaries in the coming days and months. Jackson Prosco, Global News, Des Moines. And of course, as Jackson points out, it is all about momentum. It's not that you get a ton of delegates or votes out of the Iowa caucuses. You just get a little momentum and then it's into New Hampshire. And if you can get more momentum out of New Hampshire and you become the presumptive leader, then you have all of this sort of push behind you. And you've got to think, Bernie Sanders is just, Donald Trump is just absolutely licking his lips. Please make it Bernie Sanders. Because I think that is his, and he has made it clear that that is his number one choice as a running uh, rival in the upcoming U.S. presidential race. So much fun on television. So many things to take in. By the way, did you get this this weekend that Canada's heritage minister has now suggested that news media in Canada should be regulated, requiring news outlets in this country to be licensed? Quote, if you're a distributor of content in Canada, obviously, if you're a very small media organization, the requirement probably wouldn't be the same as your Facebook or Google. That would have to be proportionally embedded in this, Stephen Gabor said to Evan Solomon on the question period, CTV's question period. Well, that did not go over so well. You know, people are like, what are you talking about? News organizations have to be licensed. What, the government's going to decide? Who gets a license? Who gets to say what? Are you kidding me? That sounds a lot like censorship. Well, the minister had to come out this morning and say, uh, let me rephrase. Let me be clear. Our government has no intention to impose licensing requirements on news organizations, nor will we try to regulate news content. We are committed to free and independent press, which is essential to our democracy. Our focus will be, and always has been, to ensure that Canadians have access to diverse, to diversity of high quality and credible news sources. We will speak again when we have legislation to present. That is Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Gabel talking to me talking this morning, saying that, yeah, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean that. And then he was asked, okay, well, who asked you to come out here and clarify that, sir? Who asked you to come here today and oh, clarify your I, I did that all by myself as a 
Big boy. I mean, well, clearly some, pe boy. some people Why? some people were confused. I, I could see that some people were confused about this particular uh, recommendation in, in the report, so I felt it was important okay. to clarify. He's a big boy. That's why he thought it was important to clarify. But that clarification was not enough for conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner, who holds the title of Shadow Minister for Industry and Economic Development. The minister has twice called Canadians stupid. Um, first of all, in making the assumption, by, by, by accepting any premise that somehow the government has a role to regulate uh, free speech, there's an underlying assumption there that Canadians don't have the capacity to think for themselves. Second of all, I think that uh, the response to the question this morning was unacceptable. It was, well, people were confused, right? Um, I, I think that the government has to be very clear about one thing, that the role of the state is not to interfere in people's right to free speech or the freedom of the press. That is going to continue to uh, percolate. This all comes from that panel that uh, released last week that said that there should be a, a realignment in terms of uh, Canadian broadcasting standards and laws and that we should be able to say, well, we should license Facebook and we should license Netflix and that they should collect tax and that they should put money into a Canadian content fund, much the way that regular broadcasters like Global Television and our parent company, Chorus Communications, Chorus Entertainment, is forced to. Interesting. That is going to continue. Thank you so much for staying with us this hour and spending some time with us this hour. Jeff MacArthur is up next here on the mighty Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Join me tonight on Global News TV at 5.30 with my co-anchor Farah Nasser in that program. That program is simulcast beginning at 6 p.m. right here on this radio station. I'm back again tomorrow at noon. Have a great day.